Well, this morning we are going to be in Luke chapter 20. We will be looking at verses 1 through 18. It's Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I'll bring the text up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes of the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who, who it is that gave you this authority. And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. And so they answered, that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, but this one they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So I want to start this morning in the book of Luke by talking about the book of Job. Specifically, Job's friends. And now, at this, when you read the book of Job, and if you're not familiar or, or need, just for, to refresh your memory, the book of Job has a, has a guy named Job. And we're told by the text that Job was a righteous man. and Not perfect man, but he was righteous. He made sacrifices. He was a good, he was a good man. So we, we would say he's good people, right? And, uh, and so uh, and Job's going along, and through no fault of his own, he comes into the worst sta- circumstances that anyone could enter into. He loses everything. He loses his home. He loses his children. He loses his health. He loses everything. All that he's left with is his wife, who's, who's, and, uh, and all she's doing is telling him to curse God and die. So, um, so he is in about the worst place imaginable. And then, Dave, then Job's friends show up. And Job's friends show up, and they're, they're great at first. They sit in silence for days with him, which is a wonderful thing. The ministry of presence, we like to call it. And, and, they, and, it's, and that's great. They do that. And then they begin to interact with Job and try to encourage him and try to, put, try to get, lift his eyes to God. And then, uh, and, then, uh, and then he interacts with them and he's upset. He's angry. He's wrestling through these things. Uh, but then by the end of their interaction, his friends are outright accusing him. 
and essentially calling him a blasphemer, saying he deserves what he gets. So, so how did how did how did Job's friends go from where they started to the end? Well, the reality is that his friends were actually being insincere. The reality is, is that they showed up and they assumed that what happened to Job was his fault. But they just started up, but they started off, you know how you do when you're trying to get somebody to, you know, fess up to something, but you're being real nice about it. And you go, so, you got something you want to tell me? You know, God, so what's been going on in your life lately? Anything, uh, anything to report? You know, and then you start there and eventually, eventually you're like, okay, out with it. What'd you do? And then out with it. I know what you did. You did this. <laughs> like, and so, and so that, that's what happened. Is his, his friends, did, ultimately, they came not to comfort him, but to accuse him and to find out what he had done wrong. And we have a similar situation here with the religious leaders. The religious leaders of the Jewish people come to Jesus and they seek, you know, they secret, they want to, they, they're being nice on the outside. Uh, effectively, they're being civil, but they really don't like Jesus, and they really don't like, especially his authority. They hate his authority, and that should be a familiar, uh, um, a, a familiar idea because today people still have an authority problem when it comes to Jesus. Jesus is fine as long as he's giving me advice. Jesus is fine as long as he, you know, whatever he wants me to do is optional. But if Jesus is demanding my obedience, then that's a no-go because nobody tells me what to do. The very heart of the fall of humanity is the rejection of God's authority and the exaltation of the authority, not of the devil, but of the self. I am the ultimate authority of my life. And so here we see in this text this rejection and hostility towards Christ's authority and God's authority. And we see it first in what we can call a contentious confrontation followed by a piercing uh, parable that Jesus tells. So in verses 1 through 8 we have this contentious confrontation. And, and in this contentious confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders, we see the willful unbelief of the religious leaders is revealed. So Luke informs us that Jesus was preaching the gospel. Jesus was preaching the gospel regarding the kingdom of God. That was Jesus' gospel. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And this should be an encouragement to not only ministers, but to every Christian, because the same gospel that we believe, the same gospel that we share, is fundamentally the same good news that Jesus himself proclaimed. And while he's doing this, he's publicly confronted by a group of Jewish leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now, um, this seems to be a delegation that was sent by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a 71-member council made up of members of those groups, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, 71 of them. And apparently they sent a little delegation to Jesus uh, to go confront him. And you don't have to be a New Testament scholar to see that publicly confronting someone uh, in in, in this scenario, challenging their authority, puts the honor and reputation of both parties at stake. This is, this is like, we're, we're throwing down here publicly and someone's going to win, someone's going to lose. And they seem to have some confidence because they're on home turf, right? 
because Jesus is coming in from Galilee. This is where they. This is this is their this is their home court. And the exchange, of course, it, it is a bit humorous, but they think they've got a gotcha question. They've got the gotcha question ready for Jesus. It's like, it's kind of like when the, the the atheist comes and comes comes and says, "Well, could God, if He's so powerful, make a rock so big that He couldn't lift it?" Faith destroyed. You know, they're like mic dropping or they're walking around. You're like, you need to calm down, take a nap. Okay, that's 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 very juvenile. But uh, but uh, so they think they've got Jesus cornered because if Jesus answers the question, if He says by His own authority. He says these things and he does these things. Well, then like, they can say, well, we reject you because God is our authority. You know, the Lord is our authority. But if he says that, he, that, that God is his authority, then no doubt they will some, find some way to accuse him of blasphemy and seek to kill him, or at the very least to silence him and drive him out of there. But while they think they have Jesus trapped, they have, they have actually trapped themselves and forced themselves to reveal their own unbelief. I mean, in all honesty, everybody knows the answer to the question. By what authority would Jesus have healed the sick, the blind, the lame, or raised the dead? They knew what the answer was going to be, but they didn't want to accept it. And so they asked the question in bad faith, simply as a tactic to get Jesus. But note here that even the testimony of Christ's miracles before their very eyes. They, and they refuse to believe it. They've got plenty of people that know. They don't care that Jesus has done all these miracles. They just don't want Jesus and they don't want his authority. And so Jesus agrees to answer their question of their authority, but they have to answer his question first about the authority of John the Baptist. So where did John the Baptist's authority come from? Where did his baptism come from, he asks. Now remember, John's, ba- John's baptism is not Christian baptism. Oftentimes people mix, mix that up. John's baptism is not Christian baptism. He wasn't baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He was, it was a baptism, it was a Jewish baptism of repentance in preparation for the Messiah. That's what John's baptism was. And this is part of the, why, why Jesus' question is so pointed. Because if, if, they believe, if they believe John's baptism was from heaven, well, what is John, who is John pointing to? <laughs> right? And so the religious leaders here, um, they don't care about John the Baptist either. They didn't, they, uh, they didn't believe that John the Baptist was the prophet, but they were afraid of the people who did. And so the religious leaders were more concerned essentially with the fallout from, uh, from their words rather than the facts of the situation. It, it didn't matter what was true. What mattered was that they would be able to preserve their own authority. As Darrell Davis, the pastor scholar, summarized it, they were both faithless and gutless in their response to Christ. And so they refused to answer Jesus, and Jesus in turn refuses to answer them because he knows what they're about. The religious leaders are here revealing their abject unbelief, not merely in Jesus or in John the Baptist, but in the very promises of God that were communicated by them and truly embodied in the person of Christ. They have become lost in a moment. And these, these men cannot allow the reality that Jesus just might be the one that God had promised to send. 
But in this exchange, they, they reveal not only their unbelief, but also the ultimate authority of Jesus is revealed. The ultimate authority of Jesus is revealed here. Now, it's important to, to consider the word authority itself. Now, in, in Greek, the, the word for authority is the exact same word, asousia, is the exact same word uh, as power. And what is that? Well, that word means essentially to the ability to, you know, what is power? What is authority? It is the ability to exert one's will over a situation, over circumstances, over people. That is what power is. The ability to do what you want in whatever way you want. That's power. That's also authority. And so someone, uh, you know, there's different types of authority that we think of, though. Someone may have authority because they have demonstrated their competence in a particular area or skill. Uh, They may have demonstrated, you know, noble or godly character. Someone may have authority because of their credentials, which speak to uh, also an established um, uh, competence that that came beforehand. Uh, Someone may have authority because of their position. Indeed, John the Baptist's baptism was from heaven, that is, from God. And his authority came not from himself, it came from his office as prophet, as one who was called by God to speak to his people on his behalf. And as the scriptures state, this prophet was special. This is the last of the prophets, and he was the forerunner to the Christ, to the Messiah. He is the one who makes the way for the promised one, as the the prophet Isaiah says. And so if John the Baptist's authority of of heaven is behind his baptism, it's kind of a lesser to the greater here, how much more, if that's true about John the Baptist, how much more authority does Jesus have? If John the Baptist says, I must diminish, he must increase. If he says, I am not fit to untie a strap of his sandals. And that means Jesus has far more authority. Because the authority of of, uh, John the Baptist, the prophet, was derived from God. Jesus' authority is not only given to him from his father, it is self-derived from himself. Because he is God in the flesh. He is the unique son of God. And so Jesus has all the authority that he needs and more. He has more authority than John the Baptist. He has more authority than all the Sanhedrin combined. The leaders should be more concerned about rejecting the authority of Jesus than even rejecting the authority of John the Baptist, but they reject all of it. And all of this should cause us to beware of what I call happy-talking Jesus. Several weeks ago in in the adult Sunday school class, uh, uh, the, the lesson was uh, meant it referenced church attendance in the 1790s. Anybody remember that? And does, does anybody remember what the percentage of church attendance was in the 1790s in America back in the good old days when we were good old Christians? It's like, yeah, single digits. Right? Single digits. Why? Because of the spread of two things called deism and Unitarianism. Now, I'm not going to get in the weeds on that, uh, but essentially these movements denied the authority of Jesus, going so far as to deny the miracles of Christ, especially his resurrection. 
And the point that Dr. Nichols in that, in that study made in that lesson was that you could speak of Jesus in the highest terms. The best teacher, the greatest moral guide, the best man who ever lived. But if we deny the miracles of Christ, especially the resurrection of Jesus... Well, then I think he was quoting Jonathan Edwards here, but he said, if we if we can speak in the highest possible terms of Jesus, but if we deny his authority, if we deny his miracles, if we deny his resurrection, then we have an infinitely lesser Jesus. And we do not have a Jesus that can save. Because without a resurrected Christ, without a miraculous Christ, then we have no gospel. We should also add that like the religious leaders, we should not be taken in by claims of people who say, well, I would believe the gospel if God would just show me a miracle. If God would show me a miracle. No, you won't. It should be our response. If God were to suddenly open up the clouds and you were to see Jesus come down from heaven to visit just you, what would they say afterwards? Man, what did I eat for lunch? Those tacos, I am not going to Taco Bell again. Never again. Swearing it off, all right? You know, it'd be like, it was a hallucination. I, I didn't eat enough. I had too much sugar. I had, you know, my blood sugar was low. It, like, they're going to make all kinds of excuses about why that wasn't it. Well, I just need one more miracle. And then it just becomes like the crowds who just want to get fed. Just want Jesus to put on a show and do miracle after miracle after miracle because never, it's never enough. What is needed is the work of the Spirit through the proclamation of the gospel according to the word of God. What is needed is repentance and faith. But to drive home for everyone the nature of this hostility that Jesus is encountering towards his authority, uh, and and he wants to make sure it's it's absolutely clear, he shares a piercing parable in verses 9 through 18. And this parable is often called, uh, rightly so, uh, um, it's labeled the parable of the wicked tenants. Now, it's, this, this parable is, some parables of Jesus are really hard to get. This is not one of those. All right? This is pretty simple in its story and its meaning. Uh, there's a vineyard and the owner, uh, he's going away. So he, he, he basically leases it out to tenants. And the way that you would pay uh, your lease back in the day is you would give a percentage of your produce, of your crop that you got from that. And, uh, and so large landowners were very popular. They had authority to enforce their wills and including justice. Uh, and including violence, as we see at the end of the parable. Uh, in, in, and so in time, the, the, now the landowner, is, as portrayed here, scholars agree, like, this landowner is portrayed as, like, hyper-generous. Like, way, way, go, go far, beyond, uh, for, far beyond what any reasonable landowner would be at that time. Uh, but but it, and so as is his right, uh, he um, he sends the servants to go collect some of the produce that was uh, that belonged to him, and and in fact, uh, as you're going through the parable, any audience listening to this in Jesus' time would have been going like, why did it take so long for him to come and kill all these people? <laughs> like he should have done it like much earlier, like. Uh, but he waits a, a, a long time. You know, we, and I highlight that because some of us in a modern audience might hear this parable and go, oh, that's horrible. He came and killed all the people. Like, Jesus is saying that? That's terrible. And the, but an ancient audience and even, uh, and even audiences in developing nations today would be going, well, it took him so long. 
Should have gone and killed them a long time ago, right? So there is a cultural interpretation factor that affects how we receive these. But, uh, um, but the tenants for their part are, well, wicked. Uh, that's, I think it's a pretty good descriptor. They beat the servants, they wound uh, one, uh, and, uh, and they, they have some delusional fantasy that if they, can, if they can just kill the son, that somehow they will be able to claim the inheritance as their own. But Jesus clarifies that, that it, they will not get an inheritance, but they will get what's coming to them, uh, which, uh, which is, uh, is going to be justice. Swift and furious justice from the landowner. And so the parable is thinly veiled. Everybody knows what's going on when they, when they hear Jesus' words. The landowner is God. The vineyard is essentially, it's, it's exactly, not exactly clear to identify uh, down, but I would say basically the vineyard is, is the kingdom of God. And some people might say the land, but it, Isaiah 5 talks about the vineyard of the Lord and its reference to the, the people of God, but essentially it's the kingdom of God. Now, and the tenants are the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Sanhedrin. Uh, that he's been interacting with. Uh, this would include uh, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And uh, the servants are the prophets uh, that are sent, uh, um, who Israel had notoriously and historically persecuted and even killed. And the landowner's, landowner's son, of course, is Jesus. Now the tenants clearly deserve what they get, but the listeners reject it because they know that Jesus is talking about them. Right, uh, and, and further, he says that the vineyard will be taken away and given to others, presumably those outside of Israel, which would be the Gentiles, the nations. And that, of course, was uh, unthinkable, if for no other reason, because of the location in which Jesus is teaching. He's in the temple, teaching this, saying, all this is going to be taken away from you. <laughs> it's going to be given to the Gentiles. So after engaging with the leaders about his authority, revealing their unbelief and their cowardice. Jesus tells this parable about God sending his prophets to his people again and again, only to have them mistreated, mistreated beaten, and they know, what, they know good and well, killed. And then now, he says, finally, the landowner is going to send his son, who they also kill, and then judgment will fall. And so in this parable, I want, simply want to highlight two things. Uh, first is the delusional hatred of God's authority. The delusional hatred of God's authority. Uh, when it comes to parables, it, uh, it's important not to overthink the details of them or to, or to over-allegorize them. This is something the medieval church got into really bad. Uh, but, the, but the basics are enough. We don't need to like, go to the vineyard and say, well, the vineyard is probably an olive vineyard. And you know, olives, uh, they're, they're green and, uh, usually, and they're kind of that ugly green. And that stands for this. And then the little pimento we like to put in our olives, our green olives. Well, that's red, and that stands for the blood. Of, you know, like, like we don't need to do that. Okay? That's just way into the weeds of speculation. Um, uh, just the, the, the basics are enough. Israel has rejected God's servants. Who, who, uh, who had reasonably and with divine authority come demanding faith, repentance, and obedience from God's people. They had abused and murdered the prophets time and time again, but now the landowner has sent his son who they now want to kill. Now, what is so odd here, though, is how delusional the tenants are. I mean, in the parable, how in the world do they really think they're going to get away with this? They see the son, they're like, well, if we kill him then we'll get his inheritance. You're like, that's not how things work. Like, if I go kill someone, I don't somehow get their house. I go to prison. Like, like that's, 
That's not how this works. All right, so... Uh, now there was, a, there was there's an obscure law I think it's traced to the land of Galilee about an absentee landlord uh, who if he didn't do anything for three years the tenants could apply to claim the land for themselves and that may be something in the background here uh, but it could also just simply be uh, delusional like the person when they get their mortgage bill and they just throw it in the trash and they just keep throwing it in the trash and they avoid the phone calls until finally they get pulled out of the house right um, they can avoid it for a while they can pretend like it's not there, but eventually it's going to catch up with them. That's what, that's what is going on here. Uh, but this is also how the world deals with the authority of God. God made our world. God has a fundamental right as our creator to demand our faith, love, and obedience to his word and to his will. But even saying that, will really rile some folks up. You know, real angry. And I still remember there was this, uh, there was this debate I was listening to between an atheist who's gone, uh, gone on, uh, who's passed away, uh, and, and several Christian apologists. And uh, to his credit, he was debating seven Christian apologists at one time. Um, but, uh, but, uh, but they were engaging with them, and it was all respectful and everything. But I should remember when the, 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 this, uh, the atheist's true colors came out, when he finally kind of lost his cool and he angrily said I will not be told what to do I will not have anyone tell me in my life how to live it what decisions to make I will not be dictated to by some heavenly dictator in, in, in North Korea or whatever he, you know so, so he, had, he had all these little whip, these quips to throw out but it was Adam and Eve who first sought to dethrone God's authority and replace it with their own that's what was going on with the fruit of the tree. And man has continued in that trend ever since. The delusion comes in thinking that man can deny God's wrath forever by simply not believing in God, by simply, not, by simply rejecting God's authority. We treat God as if he were Tinkerbell in Peter Pan, that if we don't believe in him, he'll die. That if we don't, you know, and so, but if we clap and we believe, then he'll get stronger. God does not, he does not need us. He does not need our faith to exist. He does not need our belief in his authority to have it. It's like getting pulled over by a police after you've been speeding or breaking the law and then you come up to you and you're like, I reject your authority. <laughs> They're like, that's wonderful. You're going in the back of the car. All right. So, so you can reject my authority all the way to the jail cell. All right. Like, and it doesn't matter. Uh, the authority still stands. And one thing I've noticed, though, because they say, okay, well, if people reject God's authority. What authority do they cite? And there are two, there are two authorities that are commonly cited um, outside of, of, uh, of Christianity that I've, I've heard often by people who are not in the faith. Uh, the, number one is themselves. Me. I'm the authority. The second one has been more, a more recent trend is studies. Like, what would change your mind? Well, I would have to see a study. I would have to see some studies done. Studies. And it sounds smart to say. I need studies. And then you go like, okay, what, what studies? Which studies? Uh, and, and they don't mean like scientific analysis studies. They mean sociological studies of like large groups of people who, and their behaviors and how they opt. This percentage of this many people do this thing or believe that or have this or whatever. And they're like, then if I saw enough studies, I would be convinced. Um, now, 
these studies do have their purpose. Uh, Part of my undergraduate degree focused on these types of sociological studies. Um, but, uh, But at their very best... These kinds of studies are only useful for seeing how people interact with the world and each other. They're just observational. That's all it is. It's like going into the forest and observing animal uh, habits and how they work. That's it. It's like going to, going to your, po- uh, your, your mailbox, my mailbox, with the ants that I cannot kill. And, so, and, and, to, and, and just observing their habits and how they work, especially when I poke their thing with a stick. All right, so, and, so, and they, and they go, go, go all crazy. So, uh, but they're windows into the present mindset of, of, uh, and psychology, but they are poor moral guides and poor authorities. The social studies like these, they, they, they do well in simply describing what is. They're terrible at describing what, at what ought to be. They have no ability to do that. And that brings us to the real problem with citing studies as authority or saying I would need to see studies. Is that you can, just as you can always find, you can find any, anybody, you can find one dude with a PhD who's going to back up the most perverted sin or cruelty in this world. And likewise, you can always find a study that would validate your rejection of biblical truth. There's always a study that you can cite. But so if you cite the Bible, though, then you're called a wacky fundamentalist. But if you cite this study over here, well, then then you're smart and you're and you're and you're thoughtful and insightful. But the reality is, it comes down to is that people don't want Jesus to have authority over them because if he does, it robs me of my delusion that I am the master of my own fate. But I'm not. And finally, we in the parable we observe the unique authority of the Son. The one who comes at the end is different than the others who are sent before in the parable. The others were servants. Here is the beloved son. But the rejection of the son is what brings the swift judgment upon the tenants. And when the audience rejects what Jesus says here, he quotes Psalm 118.22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Christ, who the leaders and even the people in time will reject and kill, has become the cornerstone of the new living temple of God. And when Jesus reveals this hard truth, they don't like it. But he reveals it nonetheless, that rejecting the Son will bring judgment. For everyone who falls on the stone will be shattered, and when the stone falls on anyone, he will be crushed. Again, we don't need to overread here. This is just poetic parallelism that Jesus is using to make the point that that rejection of Jesus results in complete judgment and destruction. But this presses us here today. Because there are many in our society, even right here in Meridian, who claim to be Christians but don't go to church, and it's not just they don't go to church, but they actually don't have regard for, for the authority of Christ in their lives. There are many who go to church, who are in Christian evangelical churches, who confess biblical truths regarding Jesus, that he is the unique one and only Son of God, that he is the Savior, but yet treat his commands as optional and unnecessary. And so this is where we are invited not to evaluate 
that person over there or that person over there, but to evaluate ourselves. To not let this moment pass us by. Do you love Jesus? Do you acknowledge His unique and absolute authority unlike these religious leaders in this text? His authority over you and your life. Is He your Savior and your King? And then we have to answer the question, do we obey Him? Do we strive to live in a manner that is fitting for Christ our Savior? Just like that third vow that we heard today in our membership vows. Or are we like Job's friends who come off nice, but really we don't, want it, we don't like who we're dealing with? Now let's be honest, okay? Uh, our obedience is always lacking. There is not one person here, including myself, who does not need to repent of disobedience, of lacking, lack of obedience. We call that sin by omission of not doing what the thing we're supposed to do. Our failure in our duties to obey Jesus. is not one of us. But we don't need to despair. It's not just we just need to flagellate ourselves and wound ourselves. Okay? It is true that those who reject the authority of Christ will ultimately face judgment. He is the rock that will crush the wicked. That's what he says. But as Isaiah says, he is also the servant that the Lord crushed to redeem us. And all who call upon his name will be saved. So let us reflect upon our own obedience or lack thereof today. Let us repent of where we fall short. Let us receive his mercy that was bought by his blood. And then let's go forth today by the Spirit's grace and help. And endeavor after fresh and new obedience that we may be a church, a people that truly honors the Lord and his authority. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and mercy. For we freely confess, Lord, that there is that fallen aspect of our hearts that longs to be the the, the Lord of our own lives. It longs to be the, the master of our own universe. It just wants to embrace that delusion. We thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes to, to, uh, to the reality by, by, by pain and suffering. When we smash up against our limitations that you, uh, you make clear to us that we are not in charge. That we are not in charge, Lord. We are going to die. One day, we cannot exert our will upon creation, not like you can. We are limited and weak and needy, but we are also prideful, Lord, and we bristle at the idea of giving up our authority, our rights, and handing them to you. But Lord, we pray that you would humble us, that you would show us our pride that comes through in our actions and our words, that comes through the ways that we give lip lip service to Jesus, but then we quietly just disobey. We quietly just go about doing whatever it is that we want to do. We pray that you would convict us of sin, that you would open up the, the way of holiness and righteousness and obedience.
That we would walk in faithfulness. And Lord, where, where maybe there, those of us here today that may be despairing because of these things, that, that may fear your wrath, Lord, we pray that you would bring your assurance and hope that comes in the gospel alone, because we cannot earn salvation by our obedience. We can't earn it by being good enough, by honoring authority enough, by obeying enough. So Father, we pray that you would cleanse your people today of our sin, that you would renew us in our faith, but that it would be a faith that is not dead and that it does not produce works, but a faith that produces obedience, joyful obedience. So, Father, we pray that your spirit would lead us, that we would honor your son, and that we would live lives of obedience and faith and repentance daily until your kingdom come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.